Welcome to Logos Live. I'm Robert Martin, Director of the City Bible Forum in Melbourne, and I'm your host for the show. Logos is a Greek for word or message, and Logos Live seeks to engage the Christian message in Melbourne. Yet today our show doesn't come from Melbourne, instead I'm in the UK. This also means that we're not recording before a live audience, so today's episode is a bit like a Logos pre-recorded. But nonetheless, I'm still sure you'll enjoy what we have in store. Today I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Ruth Bansevich. Ruth is a research associate at the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion, working on the positive interaction between science and theology and the Test of Faith Resource Project. After reading genetics at Aberdeen University, she completed a PhD at Edinburgh University based on the MRC Human Genetics Unit, working on gene-environment interactions during vertebrae development. She now works for the Faraday Institute to develop the Test of Faith Resources, and she joins me now. Ruth, welcome to the show. Hello, it's good to be here. Now, tell me, I'm intrigued. How do you read genetics? Um, what does that mean? Oh, read is an old-fashioned English way of saying that you studied it. Right, okay. Yeah. And I notice you have a, a published work. Now, I'll see if I can get this one right. Subfunctionalism of Duplicated Zebrafish Pack 6 Genes by Cis Regulatory Divergence. Now, I might need a PhD to understand that sentence. What did your research involve? What on earth does that mean? Well, that particular paper was about how you have one gene and then you have different parts of the DNA that regulate the activity of that gene. Right. So that's what we were looking at. And that's because people started doing the Human Genome Project. They guessed there were 100,000 genes and then apparently had a sweepstake every year guessing how many there would be and it went down and down and down and down and down and we ended up with about 30,000 genes and realised that actually most of the difference between you and banana is in the regulatory elements. Oh, right. So you were looking at bananas, though. You were looking at... No, no, no. no. So that's probably an, an oversimplification. But yes, the, maybe the difference between you and a, a fruit fly, say, or something like that. That paper was a little bit of a tangent um, on my work. Mainly what I was looking at is exposure to different environmental toxins and things during development. Um, and I was using zebrafish because we don't like experimenting on people. Mm-hmm. And we were, we were looking at how eye development is affected. And it was a specific mechanism by which um, environmental toxins might bring out uh, the effects of mutations in DNA. Mutations that are already there, they're not doing anything. And then you have a toxin and then the mutations start doing something. Right. I appreciate with working with toxins why you wouldn't want to be working with people <laughs> to be doing that so no, much? No, 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 because that's how I justify animal research in that specific area. We're very responsible with that. And um, well, the main thing I really enjoyed with that research was I was uh, breeding fish, and they are so beautiful. Yeah. And I spent a lot of my time actually I, not poisoning things, but just watching them develop. Right. Um, and seeing these tiny baby fish are about two millimetres long. And you can see the blood circulating around their body. They're completely transparent the first few days of their life. And they're so beautiful. Wow. And their wow. eyes eyes are big and bright and shiny. And that was always something that filled me with wonder, was looking at those These little tiny yeah. fish. So what, uh, what was the impact of your work then? Well, it was a little tiny brick in the sort of great wall of knowledge about developmental defects, the diseases that kids are born with. Mm-hmm. And I think it will be some time before there's always a bit of a lag between your research and it being affecting the things that doctors do. So it will be part of a body of research, people looking at exposure to environmental toxins and how that affects our development. So, wow. So, um, so you have one little brick 
with your name on it, yeah, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, no Nobel Prizes. <laughs> definitely, definitely not. No, but, okay. But, um, you know, it, it, I think it's all important stuff. Yes, yes. So, what fascinates you about science? I think, I mean, like a kid. In a way, you can be like a, a kid that never grew up. You can keep asking why, why, why. And with the training that you have, you're equipped to answer your own questions in a way. Mm. And that's fun. I loved being able to read a paper one day and then think, oh, I want to do that in my experiments. I want to try that out. You know, that's exciting. Mm. Okay, there's a lot of frustration. Um, There's (laughs) a lot of mundane work. And in the end, I wanted a bit more variety. So I don't work in a lab anymore. I, I enjoyed the time I had. But for a lot of people... I think you know you're in the right job when you feel like you're getting paid to play. Right, well, <clears throat> some wow. of my scientist friends feel like that. They get paid to play. and um, I think the more I find out about the world, I would say now I'm an armchair biologist. <laughs> right. um, the more I find out about the world, the more I can say, God, you're so great. So you're not in a lab anymore, but mm-hmm. do you miss the lab at all? Sometimes I do, um, and I wish I could have made a bit more of a go of it, but I think I lacked the patience, I think, <laughs> right. to carry on. And also the focus. Um, but certainly a lot of my friends who I studied with in my PhD days are still there. Right. Um, still alive. And they love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very happy with what I do now. Yeah. Okay. I, I can see how I'm suited to it. So. <laughs> Rid, you're a, a scientist who's mm-hmm. also a Christian. Uh, what convinced you to become a Christian believer? Well, first of all... I was exposed to Christianity. My parents are Christians. My mum was, I'd say, a, she was a demon Sunday school teacher. She was great. Demon Sunday school oh, teacher. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't use those two words together. <laughs> she was amazing. At, right. She was a wonderful Sunday school teacher. Right, and she yeah. was brilliant at explaining things. So yeah. I do remember reading through children's story Bibles and her explaining things to me. And Jesus died on a cross and these things. I remember those moments. I remember when I was in primary school, so I would have been about five or six probably, and I realised that um, God loved me, that Jesus died for the bad things I did. This is like the kid understanding of the gospel. I realised yeah. that um, that if I accepted what Jesus did, then I would live forever. That was like my kid understanding of it, and I thought, that's great, I love that. you know. And I think as I grew up, my understanding grew up mm. until I reached about 16, I think. I would say that was probably the first time I had serious doubts. I we did philosophy at school, and my teacher was, I think, right, rightly trying to aggravate us and get us to think. What do you? What do you believe? You know, why do you believe it? And um, I had to sit and think. Okay, well, what? I think this was a fledging scientist. Why do I believe this? What's the evidence? Mm. So I looked at that, and I think for me, I'd never seen any internal inconsistencies. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that I'd seen in the Bible when I'd said, but what about this? Doesn't this contradict that? My parents were very well equipped to be able to explain to me or find people at church or whoever could explain to me. So I don't remember any problems with that. And on top of that foundation of knowing that the Christian faith made sense and made sense of the world, I knew that I had seen the evidence of answered prayer and people's lives being changed. And I thought, it's God, then that should happen. So that was enough for me. And since then, I have had various doubts and things, but I have seen my own life change. I've seen my friends' lives change for the better. Mm. So that's why I'm Well, it's a fairly widespread opinion that science and theology are Mm -hmm. in opposition, that there are many who would claim that people like you, uh, Christian scientists, shouldn't exist. 
What do you make of the, the conflict thesis that God and science are, are yeah. fundamentally opposed? Yeah, I think it's unnecessary. Mm-hmm. I think people... Obviously, people think it, and it's something we need to talk about. Why do people think there's an inconsistency there? What do they understand science to mean? What do they understand Christian faith to mean? And I think if you have a full understanding of science, if you have a full understanding of Christian faith, then they are completely compatible. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that God made the universe. I believe that we can understand the process by which he made it using science. He gave us brains. The Bible, I think, encourages us to explore the universe. There's nothing there prohibiting us from don't touch, don't taste, don't, you know. Solomon, the great king in the Bible, is very learned and wise and teaching people and studying the world and animals and plants, you know. And that was glorified, you know, that was, isn't he great, isn't he wise? Mm. You know, there's an example to follow in. All the way along, science has been supported and pushed by Christians. And even, you know, in in Europe, when science was being established here, Christian theology played a big part in that. People Mm -hmm. justifying science by saying, look, people like Isaac Newton and Robert Boyle, many others saying, who are we to know the way the world is? We can't just sit in an armchair and do philosophy and say our tree grows. We actually have to go and do an experiment. Mm. because God God could have made the world any way he liked. So they were using that theological justification to say, get out there and do an experiment. We have to do science. Mm. Um, you could say that science makes the most sense within a Christian framework. That's a controversial thing yeah. to suggest. Very controversial. <laughs> but I, I think people would agree. They might say, okay, let's get rid of the Christian framework. We've grown up now. We don't need that. Mm. Um, But I think there is everything within the Christian framework to say the world is ordered, it's rational, we are rational, we should explore it, we can expect to see things that make sense, you know, the laws of gravity and all these other laws Mm. of physics, that makes sense, because people, that was another another way that theology fed into science, was to say that God is a a God of order, he's he's logical, Um, so we should expect to see that in nature. That was a step of faith, that was an assumption that people made, and it was rewarded. So Mm. now it's an assumption you just make blindly. Mm. Mm. But as a Christian, I say, well, I have a basis for that. Mm. And and, I mean, it's ingrained in our society. Mm. That we do expect order. That we do expect order, because we do have Christian roots in our society, and it's not a weird thing to think. But then in other societies... For example, I think in other places, you know, with a Buddhist background, a Hindu background, you you wouldn't necessarily expect that. So to be a scientist, you're almost going against the grain at mm, times. Yeah. As you worked in your professional science capacity, were there challenges to your belief in God as you progressed in your professional scientific career? Not really. I mean, the main one was the ethical thing, because I was in a genetics lab, and we had human tissue samples around, I had to think about what I obviously I'm okay with animal research if it's done responsibly but I decided that I wasn't okay with research using tissues that came from human embryos Mm -hmm. so I plucked up my courage and told this to my supervisor and she was fine with it you know she obviously disagreed but um I mean I could see that she disagreed but she respected the way I felt and said that's fine there's plenty to do you know just do you know, what you can do. And that was great. And she actually rearranged a project for me around that so that I could work on it, which was brilliant of her. Mm. Your courage was re- rewarded. Yeah, yeah. I tried, stressed about it for ages and you know, then I felt ridiculous because she was so... <laughs> so I mean, I, I think... I have had friends in other labs who, you know, their boss has a chip on their shoulder about religion and they find it tougher, but 
scientifically, there should be no reason why people of different religions or no religion at all can work together. Mm. And I think overall, I suspect there are less problems with that than you would as a Christian in a philosophy department. So I'll just throw that out there. We'll just throw that out there. We're being controversial here today. Why not be keep the keep that going? So, what did your professional colleagues make of your your Christian faith? Yeah, I mean, I in myself, I didn't meet any of the chip on shoulder people. Mm. <laughs> I've just heard about that recently, and I wonder if that's more of a recent development because the likes of Richard Dawkins have given people a platform to bring that out more publicly and say that these people are ridiculous. And I think that's based on a misunderstanding of philosophy, of theology, of science, of everything. Mm. Um, but somehow it's been justified in mm. some way. Um, yeah, and I mean, I still think it's patchy and it's rarer than a lot of people think. Most of what I encountered was nobody really cares. You know, they just, there's so much work to do. It's tough maintaining a career in science, you have to get on with your work. I don't think people are that interested. For social reasons, for mm. cultural reasons, in my faith. Mm. Now, you've also edited a book, Test of Faith, mm. where you feature some stories of leading Christian scientists. Are you able to share some of the stories from that which you find particularly inspiring? Yeah, they all brought their different perspectives. It was very interesting. Uh, some people like Alistair McGrath, John Polkinghorne, Francis Collins, um, who were all... Francis Collins is running the National Institutes of Health in the US now. Um, I think it's a budget in the billions of dollars or something. I think it's enormous. He is. He has a big job and he still replies to his emails, which is amazing. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, And um, so those people all had a very rational, step-by-step understanding of Christianity, although there was always a point at which there was maybe a moment where they had to change their mind. You know, I was once an atheist, now I believe in God, which is quite an emotional moment. Uh, It's a difficult, for some people, quite a painful moment I think for Francis Collins, he was a little bit like the writer C.S. Lewis, who was a, a miserable new believer. So, yeah. oh, God, it's obvious <laughs> God is there. Oh, no, now I'm miserable. And then they discovered that Jesus died instead of us for things we did wrong. So, you know, after that, they were like, oh, okay, this is all so, good. So there is hope in life. and Yeah, the, the incredible, shocking uh, generosity of God saying... I don't care what you did, I forgive you. Really? I have to do something? No, 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 I don't care what you did. And actually, I find when we go into schools, that's the part that young people are asking us about. They really, they haven't learned that that is what Christianity is about. They think it's about dressing up smart and going to church on Sunday and being good. And and that's, especially for very academic young people, Mm. you know, to realise that there's someone who loves you, whatever you've done, whatever you're good at, whatever you're bad at, is that true? I don't have to prove myself. You can say that well, the Christian <laughs> message is not about yeah. uh, performance. It's no. about following, yeah. following Jesus. Yeah, and that actually, I'm thinking of a lady called Rosalind Pickard, who, um, as a woman in a very male-dominated profession, or maybe it wasn't just her gender, it was somebody in a very prestigious university learning to find her feet as a scientist, and her faith gave her great courage, you know, because she... She thought, I am a human being, just like all these other human beings, um, that God made me, and I can have confidence just to put my work out there. And there's another story that she told about humility, which scientists, you're always having to have confidence in your work and your idea and in the data that you have. So you, people can tend to be a bit arrogant sometimes, but she mm-hmm. realised that her Christian faith helped her to be a bit more humble. She had a story about someone, her... 
church were recruiting people to help with, I can't remember what it was, some kind of outreach event, a social event, and someone said, oh, to the pastor, I, I, you know, I'm a MBA or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm so qualified, I'm overqualified for this. And the pastor just said, overqualified? Are you kidding me? Let me tell you about overqualified. Jesus was overqualified. Here's <laughs> <laughs> the creative universe comes down, <laughs> born in a stable as a human being and cries and has to learn to, to hold his bladder and everything else, just like the rest of us. You know, mm. that was overqualified. Mm. What else do you, do you think we can learn from, from these journeys of in science and faith? Yeah, I think these are human beings. One of the other stories from a neurologist called Alistair Coles, clinical neurologist. It was almost an allegory, the story that, that got him thinking. He's a very thoughtful guy about Christianity, and he'd, he'd had all the arguments. He'd, he'd been a staunch atheist. He had all the arguments with his friends, went away for a year in South America, and got uh, lost on a hike and very deeply lost, uh, going around a lake, and ended up clinging to a cliff, trying to get down. <laughs> That's pretty seriously and, lost. And there were, <laughs> there were a couple there in a canoe, drifting past, just keeping an eye on him. And he was calling out to them, and he was, you know, he was trying to struggle his way along, and, and they were keeping an eye on him. And he, he got to the end, and, and they had built a fire and had some food, and you know, he sat down. And they, they explained, they, they didn't come and rescue him, they were just keeping an eye on him, and they said they had... They hadn't been able to have kids, but today they were they were remembering an instant in their life where it meant they hadn't been able to have kids, and today they felt they were just looking after him, and that is making me tear up now. Actually, I remember I, I he said to him that was the final thing that he was like that is what God is like to me. He's watching me struggle with all these questions, and he's there. I think that's where there are moments in people's lives where these things come up. They're not utterly logical. Alistair McGrath would say they are rational, but they go beyond rationality. And I think as human beings, we do that. We do it in relationships 100% of the time. Um, And nobody would deny that. Richard Dawkins would not deny that. And I think what's important is to recognise these moments that are spiritual and to say that's real, something happened there. Um, That was important to me at the time, and I'm not going to forget it. I'm going to act on it. And I think... The thing with these scientists, the one common theme was that for all of them, they set off kind of gung-ho into this, right, I'll investigate Christianity, I'm not scared of it because if it's wrong, it's you know wrong if it's true, well, whatever, if it's true. That was when the scientific part kicked in and they first said, well, if it's true, I'm going to have to accept it, you mm. know, because truth is truth. Um, and they were courageous, which I think you have to be, to be like Francis Collins... Um, top scientist, you have to be courageous to say I was wrong. Mm, you know, unless you say yeah. I was wrong, you land on a blind mm. alley, end up in a blind alley for the rest of your life, mm. and you will not be a good scientist. No. So I was impressed with the courage of these people who changed track. I don't care what the consequences are. Mm. You know, they 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 acted on those spiritual experiences and their intellectual inquiry. Mm. Now, as part of Logos Live, we reflect on a part of the Bible, the Logos, mm-hmm. which resonates with the experience of our guests and. A, I thought we'd reflect on Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. As a scientist, what do you make of this? Yeah, this is the topic I've been working on mainly the last three years. Just saying, how does science enhance the experience of faith? Or for a Christian, how can we worship God in the lab? And 
I found I didn't spend so long in the lab, just a few years, but I, when I talk to other scientists who are Christians and say, what is your experience as a Christian in the lab? When I ban them from responding to arguments and say, no, no, what do you think? <laughs> they normally say, well, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's awesome. It makes me realise just how big God is, how great God is, what an incredible universe there is out there. Astronomers looking at the very big, cell biologists looking at the very small, theoretical physicists looking at the mathematical underpinnings of the universe. They are mind-blown. In fact, Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who's a Quaker physicist, said you can't really keep the scale of the universe in mind. You just couldn't function normally. Mm. No, um, no. And you have to work in powers of ten, you know, math- mathematical shorthand, and it's only when you do the public talk you see people's jaws drop and you think, oh yeah, that's the stuff I work on. Mm. Yeah, it is amazing. Wow. Um, and I think it's not proof for God. I think that's very dangerous because science is always changing and theories are changing, and if you pin your faith too closely and say to some scientific theory and say, oh, you know, this is proof for God... It's not a great tactic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's better to say, this is pointing to something. What does this point mm-hmm. me to? Mm-hmm. Well, this passage here moves the reader from, or points the reader from the creation world, the observed mm-hmm. universe which he sees, to a, a sense of awe. We see what God's made and it declares his glory. Mm-hmm. So his works declare his greatness, much like, mm-hmm. say, an author's greatest work mm-hmm. declares their particular greatness and glory. Mm-hmm. So are Christian scientists any less awestruck because we now understand how more of the physical processes of the universe work? I think it's a two-stage process sometimes in science. You're awestruck, then you find out how it works. And you might be slightly disappointed because it's... Sometimes, because it's just a bit less poetic. Um, But very quickly, as you grasp the full reality of what you've learned, you'll realise that it's more awesome. Mm. Um, When you understand that the DNA in your body... It's, it's so thin you can't see it, unless you have the most powerful microscope in the world. But if you took all the DNA out of somebody's body, two metres in every cell, curled up into every cell, it, it's that thin, and say about 50 trillion cells in the average human body, give or take the odd give or have a couple, one, one, zero or, <laughs> or whatever, um, and you could, it would, if you added it up from end to end, it would take you to the sun and back more than 300 times. That's amazing. Wow, wow. <laughs> um, uh, so in many respects you could say, rather than saying the heavens declare, you could say the DNA yeah, de- declares yeah, the glory of God. It is, and uh, Matt Redman, a popular Christian worship songwriter, has written that exactly that thing. You know, it's the galaxies out there, and every time we breathe, the stuff beneath our skin, you know, both those things declare God's glory, and I think that's absolutely right. Mm. So do scientists look up at the skies and see... The glory of God or just another scientific puzzle that needs solving? I think both. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, that's great. There's a, there's a time to be full of awe and have those moments that are much more spiritual. Um, and then there are other times to sort of almost switch the awe off <laughs> and be... Or press the awe button. Yeah. Mute, mute the, the awe button, yeah. The pause <clears throat> button and delve into the... Or let that awe turn into wonder. Why? What? Where? Who? You know. And in the same way that if someone gives a kid a Christmas present, they want to use it, you know, and learn about it and how to use it properly. And I think that's right with us, with um, what God has made, is to 
explore it. How does it work? How can we be responsible with this? And use it in a way, uh, remembering that we are also part of it. Yeah. And all of it declares God's glory, so mm. we mustn't stop it doing that. Well, now we know a lot more than the ancients. Mm-hmm. Uh, physical processes unknown to them are known to us today through, through mm-hmm. science. Does that, does that mean, though, that God doesn't have a place? Absolutely not. I think that would be a view of science and theology, I think, is too narrow as saying, oh, God is for explaining the things we don't understand, mm. and science is for explaining things we do understand. Um, sort of a God of the gaps kind of yeah, thing. And, yeah, and then as science progresses, God gets smaller and smaller and disappears. <clears throat> I don't believe in that kind of God. I think God made all of everything. He's God of all the things we understand and the things we don't understand. And we hope we will understand the mm. things we don't understand because that would mean we could appreciate God's creativeness even yeah. more. Those processes he put in place. Um, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy with the idea of the Big Bang and evolution and God sustaining that whole process mm. and going look what I made this is amazing you know mm. reveling in it mm. you know I think that's that mm. is that's a big but just because you understand how something works doesn't negate no. the glory of the maker yeah um, yeah it doesn't take anything away from it it's mm. a funny logic when yeah. you, you go down that way yes in your experience do unbelieving scientists ever feel the same sort of sense of awe do you think oh definitely definitely and it depends obviously hugely on their personality and um, how they express that, what words they'll use. People will probably use less spiritual-sounding words now or religious-sounding words now. In the 40s and 50s, physicists were quite given to using quite... Edwin Hubble used quite mystical, religious-sounding words when he talked about these experiences you have when you have this sense that there's something else there. Einstein was fascinated by the language of mathematics and how it describes the universe. Mm. That's amazing! You know, and he, he believed in a something. It wasn't exactly a personal god, but it was a thing, a mind behind the universe. And I suppose the beauty of the Christian message is that uh, what is unknown is known to us. This uh, great unknown mind has spoken to us. Absolutely. And we can know who he is from the words of the scriptures. Absolutely. And that's where we need to be whole people, whole human beings who are well-rounded and take information from all sorts of sources, you know, historical and logical and philosophical and metaphysical, cultural. There's a wonderful quote from a lady, Catherine Blundell, who we interviewed to Test of Faith. She said, there comes a point when I'm not, where I'm not just a brain on legs, you know, I'm a whole human being. And um, I am very glad that I know about the God who is behind all this. And Francis Collins is fond of saying that what a privilege it is to study DNA and know that you know the creator who made that. That's incredible. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Ruth. And let me leave, leave you with the Logos for the day. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. I look forward to you joining us next time for Logos Live.